So in the heart of Cape Town there lies a mountain. Quite a weird thing for a city to have, especially a kilometre tall giant pile of sandstone with a lot of rivers, some lakes, and lots of climbing routes, which I happened to do yesterday. So my legs are still rather sore, but today I'm going to be telling you about all the weird and wonderful things I found up top there. But before we begin, please go follow the Scales and Tales podcasting page on Instagram at www.instagram.com forward slash scales podcasting or just search up Scales Podcasting on Instagram. We also have a Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash stpt or go check out our website at thatjungle.wordpress.com. So without further ado, welcome to Scales, Tales, Plants and Trails, your one-stop shop for all things weird and wonderful. Today, we're climbing Table Mountain. There are quite a few ways to get up Table Mountain, loads of hiking routes and climbs, and even rock climbing in places. That is India Fanstead, I think, which is one of the hardest routes to do and not advice for beginners. The easiest way to get up is via the cable car, which is cool, only takes four to five minutes, but it costs money, and honestly, where's the fun in that? Next to the cable car is Plataclip Gorge, which is probably the easiest and most commonly used climb, but it lacks a lot of the scenery the table has to offer. So, we decided to be fun and go up Skeleton Gorge. This is a route that goes through Kirstenbosch and Botanical Gardens, but actually starts in the garden, and we climb up the side of a mountain through a verdant forest with lots of waterfalls, mosses, and all sorts of fun things, and next door is Nursery Ravine, where we later came down. So on the way up this gorge, there is a lot of plant material. Plant material, plants, whatever. There's epiphytic ferns, giant ferns, and even tree ferns. Not something you see all over the place in South Africa. So this forest is rather unique. South Africa mostly has coastal forests, and then the inland is just arid, dry, shrubland, karoo, savanna, that sort of stuff. So it's pretty cool to see the very moist, tightly knit canopy ecosystem. Because the ferns were incredible. The tree ferns were probably at places three meters tall. It's crazy. They're big, they're herbaceous, and they're constantly climbing. They must be incredibly old. And even with those giant ones, there are little ferns as well. On a lot of the rocks among the mosses were little epiphytic ferns that just cling to the rocks and grow there. These are incredibly waxy, which probably means, due to not getting as much water from the soil, they have to conserve every little bit they get. These were mixed with mosses. There were so many types. We probably saw 10 or more moss species. I am terrible with mosses. Unfortunately, I can't give you any names. But it varied from little bundled buds to long fronds and just about everything in between. Another interesting thing we saw on the way up there were a few cycads, which are very similar to ferns in looks, but they're pretty easily distinguished by their spiky bases and their straight leaves. They're known in Afrikaans as Bruetboma, which translates to bread trees. I don't know who saw this thing and thought it looked like bread, but anyway, South Africa has quite a few indigenous cycad species that have been quite highly sought after just due to their rarity and their beauty. And of course, where there's water, there's frogs, and none other than the Cape River frog, probably the most common frog species in South Africa. They come in all sorts of shapes, colours and sizes, but these ones were almost entirely pitch black and we found one at the bottom, still in Kirstenbosch, under a log. And there were loads. You hear them everywhere. You don't see them very much, they're still very skittish, but 
it's a nice find nonetheless. This one was probably only three centimeters, but they usually get to about six, seven, or eight for really big ones. Well, under the logs is where you find all the cool things. We found another native resident of South Africa, which lives along the coast, which is the giant isopod that inhabits moist forested areas since they crawled out of sea quite a long time ago, much like the woodlice and similar isopods. So they still use gills to breathe, so they thrive in wet areas. These giant, these giant isopods had to be at least three centimeters long, but they curl up tightly into a ball when you pick them up, which is a really great defensive mechanism because there's absolutely no way you can get between those armored plates. But anyway, up Skeleton Gorge we went, climbing under the trees, over rocks. There's paths here and there, but at the really steep parts there's ladders, and you can actually see along the rungs where it's been worn down in the wood by the amount of people that climb it over time, because obviously it's wet, it's soft, it weighs down easily. And sometimes you even have to climb up rocky waterfalls and just scramble over the rocks. Hiking boots are advised if you don't want to get your feet wet, or you can just be very careful. From here you climb and you climb and you climb, from a few hundred meters to almost 900 meters at Breakfast Rock, which is where you basically turn onto the mountain routes and can choose where you go. We went around sort of towards the cable station, but not quite. The route we took isn't really important, we went just about everywhere. It was 22 kilometers. But right when we get to the top, it breaks out from forest where the streams were into sort of a more open shrubland. The biome change is almost immediate. You walk out of a tree canopy into a sunny, warm, open area. Almost immediately we saw a whole load of arum lilies, also known as pigias or farkure, which is the Afrikaans version of it. They're beautiful white flowers with a tall yellow stalk in the middle, and they're very popular worldwide as houseplants. In South Africa, they grow all over the place. As some, they grow in the winter, I believe. Winter-growing bulbs that flower just before summer hits, and they go dormant again, waiting for the next year. And before long, we found ants. If you know me, ants are everywhere, and I love looking for them. My brother as well. The first thing we found were giant mountain Campanatus. We don't know exactly what the name is due to the difficulty of their taxonomy, but the mages are huge, probably about one and a half centimeters long. And the nests usually have dozens, if not hundreds, of workers in them. These ones we've only seen in the mountains around here and along the coast, and they actually had elates. They were preparing to fly, so a bit of ant knowledge here. Elate ants are the ones with the wings that fly during nuptial flights. These are the new queens and males that they mate with. After the queens fly and have mated with males, the males go off and die and feed back into the ecosystem, and the newly mated queens go find a rock or a log or a comfortable spot to sit and found their colony. If they make it there, they lay their eggs and look after the brood, and eventually they have their own workarounds from which to start a colony. Anyway, so this was almost time for them. In a few weeks after it rains, on a nice warm day, they'd be out in their swarms, ready to start the next generation. After that, we found another invasive, black sugar ants. These are not quite as destructive as the Argentine ants that have taken over the world, in most senses. They're pretty peaceful with the local ants, they just sort of exist, drink nectar, and vibe. They also had absolutely tons of elates. These guys go big, they don't go home. And another really rare thing we saw was a Dorylus driver ant. So driver ants are very similar to army ants in the fact that they make these giant swarms that basically parade over the place, eat whatever comes in their way, and go from there. We found a single worker in a Campanatus nest. We don't really know what it was doing there. 
it was very much alive and we couldn't find any signs of its compatriots. We very rarely see these apart from the male elates, also known as sausage flies, that fly incredibly long distances to mate with new queens. They quite often attract as elites like moths and are about three or four centimeters long, and it's absolutely terrifying to have them fly towards a light that you are holding. Anyway, the next ant species we saw were cape droptails, or Myrmecaria capensis. These are endemic to the Cape Mountain Range, just on the peninsula of South Africa. So these sting you, actually, that's pretty nasty, I've never been stung, I hope never to be, but it's not like most ants that will spray with acid, these ones just directly sting you, and it's definitely not fun. They defend their nest aggressively, their colonies grow huge, and they forage in proteas. Last year when I went I saw them drinking nectar from a king protea, so obviously play an important role in pollinating these giant flowers. You'd think it would be something bigger pollinating a flower that's almost 20 centimeters across. And the last we found were pretty typical ants. Anaprolepis. Crazy ants. And just as the name suggests, they're pretty much cocaine, ketamine fueled nightmares that love biting and spraying acid. But they're very important for the ecosystem, and I have nothing against them. It's just really annoying when they bite their, your toes. They were only found on the sandy areas of a mountain, the very dry, arid bits, whereas the Campanatas and stuff preferred the slightly moister areas. And last, but by no means least, they were Chromatogaster, also known as cocktail ants. These guys built carton nests and shrubs, the shwabawi, for the Monty Python fans, out of carton that they recycle. I'm not entirely sure how they produce it, but it basically allows them to have elevated nests away from other ants and predators, and also allows them prime access to foraging. When you tap these nests, they come out in swarms, waving their gasters up, up and down, which gave them the name cocktail ants. Don't exactly know how that works, maybe because they're ready to spray you with a potent cocktail of formic acid. But so we go on. There were a lot of orchids on the mountain. I found three groups. The first being Ceterium odorum, which I'll also speak about in my next episode, about West Coast National Park. These are probably one of the most common terrestrial orchids in South Africa. They're all over the place. They have heart-shaped leaves and they make a big flower stem, about 40 to 50 centimeters tall, covered in tiny green and white flowers. But they smell terrific, which gets a common name, the scented orchid. This is probably vital in their pollination. I also found possibly my favorite orchid type on planet Earth, Holothrix, also known as hair orchids. These did not have flowers on them, so I couldn't really tell what species they were. They're very difficult to identify. These are tiny heart-shaped orchids, probably three or four centimeters long. They grow as bulbs in the winter, and they flower, and then they die off and go dormant in summer, like many South African bulb plants. These are covered in hairs, and it almost feels like felt which is incredibly cool and is the easiest way to identify them among other plants. The last was an orchid I've never seen before, Leparis capensis. It's very similar to Ceterium, has a heartish shaped leaf, but the flower stems are only 3 or 4 centimeters tall. The genus Leparis is quite often kept overseas, but the epiphytic forms. The epiphytes are plants that grow on rocks, wood, or away from soil. So they're quite often grown mountain on bark whereas terrestrial orchids grow on the ground and they're usually terrifically difficult to grow. And anyway, so we go on. Also on Table Mountain, trying to be unique as always, there's an absolute rainbow of lichen. Going up, we saw clumps of black, starry lichen. I believe it's called moon star lichen. It's dark, blackish, and it really stands out on the rocks. It's incredibly cool, and it forms these giant patches up to 20 or 30 centimeters across. There are also green lichens, which are a bit more typical, but these ones were weird. They had veins on, which almost makes them seem vascularized. 
which would be odd for something as primitive as a lichen. I still haven't figured out what these are. And on top of the mountain, you find these stunning neon orange lichens. These only form tiny patches, maybe one, two, three centimeters across, sometimes bigger. But it's like a bright, it's almost like traffic cone orange. And then to conflict with that, there's blood red little lichens. These also only formed in little patches on the rocks, but they're incredibly cool to find nonetheless. For those that don't know, lichens are a symbiotic relationship between cyanobacteria, which is a photosynthetic type of bacteria, which probably actually formed, was the first life form actually that gave way to plants. But that's a story for a different day. So it's cyanobacteria and algae. Now, algae is cyanobacteria. It's with fungi, sorry. The fungi form the basis of our organism, and the algae lives in the hyphae, or the growing strands of the fungi, which is incredibly cool. And these are usually seen on rooftops, or in gutters, or in trees, and pretty much anywhere else where, it's su where conditions are suitable. But, I mean, lichens are cool, but do you know what's also pretty cool? is scorpions. We always look for scorpions wherever we go. Under rocks in South Africa, you'll tend to find them somewhere. The species we found on Table Mountain was a type of Europlectes, which also happens to be one of the most common around here. The name Europlectes means burns like hell. You don't want to get stung by these. It usually will not kill you, but it's, usually, it's often not a fun time. We found two little scorpions on different parts of the mountains. These ones were almost pitch black in colour. I wonder what it is with Table Mountain and its black organisms. But it was a cool find nonetheless. And another interesting but huge invertebrate was a Cape Mountain cockroach. These have red heads and big red and yellow bands on their abdomens possibly as a warning sign for their terrible smelling spray that will discharge it to you if you get too close, if you provoke them. They're usually incredibly chiller. One actually walked in my hand. My brother at one point had a cockroach that he carried around on his hat for several hours in a previous trip, but I've also been sprayed by these before. If they feel threatened, they'll flick their abdomens at you, almost like twerking aggressively in a general direction. And if that doesn't put you off, they spray you with a brown liquid that stays, stains your skin and smells like rotten mint, that's the closest thing I can acquaint it to, and it lasts for several days, probably four or five days, even with showers in between. And so, this is just when we got to the top of the mountain. Just in the first sort of half an hour, that just goes to show how much of a biodiverse area Table Mountain really is. And anyway, there are streams everywhere on the mountain. There are a huge amount of streams on Table Mountain from the rainwater that gets caught up there. They're tannin-rich, poor in nutrients, and orange in color, or brown, it just depends on the lighting. There's, the Table Mountain soil is a very poor sandstone base, with a lot of peat. This is a perfect environment for sundews, also known as Drosera, their scientific name. These are carnivorous plants that come all across the world, usually in South America, North America, a few in Europe, many in Australia, and some in Southern Africa and Madagascar. There were five species on Table Mountain, almost a quarter of the entire group in South Africa. I only actually found five of the nine. To quickly summarize all the sundews I found, I'll start with the rosetted ones. So rosetted sundews are usually small and flat and have leaves going around in a circle in a rosette fashion. So the first one I found was Drosera cunefolia. These are incredibly thick, fat little sundews. Their leaves are insanely wide and that's a dead giveaway of cunefolia. These are also known as a peninsula sundew and are only found in that immediate area, so it's pretty cool to find those. Next of all was Drosera trinadvia, named for the three veins under its leaves, so trinadvia. These were also quite common, 
And just as a side note, when you find sundews, you find them in huge groups, anywhere from 10 to 50 to 100 plants in a few meters, but you only find them in a few places where conditions are ideal. This is what makes them so threatened, because a single development in some places can wipe out an entire population of sundews, as they're only found in small groups and scattered populations across their environment. And anyway, moving on, I also found Drosera admirabilis. These are absolutely splendid sundews, but incredibly rare on the Cape Peninsula, usually living more far to the east. I actually had the first observation of Drosera admirabilis on Table Mountain. The closest that had been observed otherwise was about 50 kilometers away. Maybe not that far, but on an adjacent mountain. And last and not least for the mountain was Drosera alisiae, very well known for being on Table Mountain and in the surrounding area, also known as Alice's sundew. This is a pretty common rosette, it's the dead standard, but these were everywhere, which is why they're so... If you see a sundew on Table Mountain, your first thought is Drosera alisiae. The fifth species that I didn't mention is actually on the way down in Nursery Ravine, Drosera hilaris, or the sprawling sundew. These are tall. The tallest one I found was 20 centimeters. These don't form rosettes like the others do. These form a stem growing upwards with the leaves growing outwards. As the bottom's leaves die, the herbaceous stem remains, and it can just continuously grow upwards, which allows it to compete with taller fainboss than the rosetted species that usually only grew in exposed areas, which made them so common along the paths. These also didn't like the water as much as the other species. The sundews in South Africa vary quite a bit. You get some that live in or around water. There are quite a lot of the Drosseras that were actually submerged and died off, but that in the surrounding peat, there were hundreds of them. Meanwhile, Drosera hilaris formed large clumps on the drier hillside. But that, that's just a little side note. Carnivorous plants are absolutely incredible. From South Africa, you actually get probably the most common species in collections worldwide, which is Drosera capensis, which is actually known as a weed of a carnivorous plant, because it spreads incredibly quickly and grows very easily. From there on, we continued hiking. Hiking, you say? We hiked 22 kilometers. And on the topic of hiking, we encountered a lot of hiker's friend. When you hear hiker's friend, you'd think it would be something friendly, something nice, something pleasant to look at or feel, but no. Hiker's friend is death. It is a spiky little prick of a plant that absolutely stabs everything it possibly can, and it feels absolutely no remorse for it. It's really, really not fun to walk into, especially when you're looking for something, you just brush into it, and you feel a stabbing pain in your legs. The tip of every leaf of Hiker's Friend is a little thorn, and it forms these large, long, shrub-like stems and grow all over the path. So I actually have wonderful, beautiful little purple flowers, absolutely tiny, only a few millimeters across, but that doesn't make up for how many cuts and scrapes you get if you walk against them. On one hiking competition, we actually had to go down 200 meters of hill. That was pretty much only Hiker's Friend, and a lot of our legs were just... It looked like a cat to use our leg as a scratching post. That is how bad it is. But rant over, after Hiker's Friend, we encountered the wetlands. These wetlands are dominated by Restionaceae, which is basically grass on steroids. Thick, reedy stems. Well, grass on steroids, maybe it's like a love child between normal grass and bamboo, which are both grasses, so maybe it's possible. This is very similar to the plants that we get redbush tea from, more commonly called rooibos in South Africa, which is redbush. Most Afrikaans names are just direct translations. So these wetlands are covered in grasses and restionaceae, and you hear an innumerable number of frogs. 
Table Mountain has a lot of frog species, like the rain frog or the river frogs that I mentioned earlier. They are rain frogs, which have very cute, fat little frogs. They have incredibly cute faces, but they only usually come out after it rains when it's wet. But the most interesting or well-known frog from Table Mountain is the Table Mountain Ghost Frog, which is endemic to an 8 square kilometer area of the Table Mountain National Park. We obviously did not see these, the location is quite well protected, but even then, atop the mountain you just hear frog calling everywhere. As you're walking on the paths between the reeds, you just hear frogs, frogs, frogs and frogs. It's actually been noted that it's so difficult to count the frogs on the mountain because there can be several per square meter, and all their calling makes it really difficult to find them. But it was made a really nice symphony to walk by when we were going towards the far end of the mountain. Going through Echo Valley and the Valley of the Red God, which is pretty much just the Valley of the Frog Gods if you ask me, we ended up at the reservoirs and the huts on the far end of the mountain, away from most of the tourists. There's only a few routes that go up here, and it's on the complete opposite end from the cable station, so very few people make it here. In the middle of the mountain, well, on the left, are two reservoirs, the Healy Hutchinson and the Woodmead Dam. Healy Hutchinson was built in 1904 as an additional water reservoir and storage for the city of Cape Town. How the hell did they get all those bricks to build a dam up on the mountain? Well, back in the day, before the big cable station was built, they had a little steam-powered cableway. On the far end of the mountain, all that is left of it now is just some stone blocks, metal bits spiked in there, and a few large, huge pieces of rotting wood. They actually still have the machinery by a little museum though, and it still works. Well, works, it still turns and moves, as we found out. It was delightful to just turn these giant gears that are bigger than a person. So they used this to lug rocks up from the valley below, and they built this dam, and later they built Woodmead Dam. Both are still functional and used to supply drinking water to the city, as far as I know. The water on the mountain is really delicious and fresh and cold, and it's always great to drink, although it is advisable to take disinfectant tablets or similar water filters when drinking mountain water anywhere you're going, or just water that isn't tap water when you're on a trail. These dams are stunning. It is absolutely beautiful. It is serene. It is peaceful. There's a lot of vegetation around it, there are a lot of birds, there's a few waterfowl here and there, but not that many because the dams are due to the low pH of the tannin-rich water and just the lack of, there's no fish, there's very few crustaceans and so on, just due to the, due to the remoteness and isolation of the dams, and also they haven't been around for that long, just over a hundred years. To buy one of these dams, we actually found one of the most interesting creatures of the day, a little velvet worm. A lot of you may have seen that video on YouTube from National Geographic or whatever channel it was that showed the velvet worms shooting a sticky goo-like thread, almost like a spider web, out to pin something down before walking over and getting it. These velvet worms look like velvet, the material, which is probably where they got their name. I don't really know too much about them. But it was incredibly cool to find them. I believe the species was a peninsula velvet worm. These are almost pitch black in color and pretty long, but they were dormant during the day, so they're all sort of compressed up with their legs together. When they're out and hunting, they stretch out a bit and they have some antennae, but we didn't want to disturb them too much, so we put their rotting log back and let them have their nap until nightfall, whenever they're active. On the way back, around the mountain, we ran into the huts. There's three permanent huts on Table Mountain that most people use, along with several others that are related to the dam. The most commonly used hut on the mountain is a People's Trail Hut, operated by South African National Parks. 
This is one just about anyone can rent out for a group, and you can even have your kit ported up to there. Which is pretty nice, because there's a deep track nearby, and then that means you don't have to lug all your gear all over Table Mountain. As someone who has had to carry things for a sleepover on the mountain, I can assure you it positively sucks to carry 15 kilograms of hiking kit all the way 10 to 12 kilometers across the mountain to the huts. So if you can have it taken up there with a jeep, I would absolutely take the option. Well, luckily for me, due to my activity in scouts, I could use the SMC Scout Hut above Table Mountain. So this was a hut built by the scouts long ago, I think in the 1920s or 30s, along with, around the time the old cable station was there, as the scouts were so heavily involved with fire protection and building stuff on the mountain. This is a lovely hut, I believe it sleeps at all. 20 or more people in several bunk beds, it has a fireplace and gas, and a solar powered light and so on. It was really a great experience to stay there, and you're just in the middle of the bush surrounded by beautiful yellow proteas, crickets, frogs, the whole lot, and even in the morning you get to wake up to find all the spider webs covered in dew. It's absolutely beautiful. The last hut that most people stay in is the Mountaineering Society hut, which is a bit of a longer more modern thing, it even has a long drop, which is amazing for the middle of a mountain. You don't have plumbing up there, just by the way. So if you're a member of the Mountaineering Society, it's probably a great place to stay. If you want to stay up there, it's definitely worth checking out the Mountaineering Society. They do some awesome stuff. Go check their Facebook page out. Unfortunately, after checking out the reservoirs and the huts and the old cable station, it was time to go back. So we went all the way back to where we started, close to Skeleton Gorge but we took a shortcut from the huts to go down Nursery Ravine. This is where those microbiomes started coming up again, because almost immediately on the descent there was more forest, with a few clearings here and there, but like the forest in Skeleton Gorge, this place had a forest floor absolutely carpeted in moss, which then opened up into a just valley of ferns and ferns and more ferns and a stream here and rocks and more ferns. The first part of a descent of Nursery Ravine was not very much fun. You basically had to scramble down the rocks bit by bit, but eventually, which was much nicer than Skeleton Gorge, it had proper pathways with nice wooden logs creating steps down the mountain through this opening, then down into forest again. And it pretty much remained forest till we were back down in Kirstenbosch. Although, when we were really close, probably about half a kilometre away, it opened up into a Feinboss shrubland. But the interesting thing there is, there's no normal trees, but there are silver trees, which aren't actually trees, but they're called silver trees. These are actually a species of protea, and we saw one that was probably almost 8 or 9 metres tall. They're giant with silver leaves, which they get their name from, which are also sort of fuzzy, like the holothrix orchids, which is really cool to feel. They're called... Uh, they should be called fuzzy silver trees, not just silver trees. Or silver fuzzy proteas would be a bit less misleading. But alas, that marked the end of it. We were back in Kirstenbosch, back in the giant botanical garden that it is. Just a visit to Kirstenbosch is worth it on its own. They have something there for everyone. They have a big arid house, they have proteas, they have feinbos, they have medicinal plants, they have plants for human consumption. They even dedicated a whole area to showing you which tree is an actual banana, and which one is a wild banana, which actually isn't a type of banana. It's a type of Strelitzia. The Strelitzia, also known as a bird of paradise, is also very popular overseas for being a big shrubby bush type thing with beautiful orange flowers. These are used to attract pollinators called sacerbeckis, or sugar, 
while it translates into sugar beak, but sekerbaki is better in my opinion. Bees are very similar to hummingbirds with long beaks that they use to pull nectar out of flowers. Kirstenbosch actually bred a very unique form of strelitzia. The normal ones are like a fiery orange, and that is usually the ones you'll see in gardens worldwide. They're quite popular in the United States. I've seen them in a video of Hugh Hefner's mansion that someone did some time ago. They're even there in that garden, so they've really made it as a flower. They are set. But Kirstenbosch decided the orange ones weren't good enough. To honor South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Mandela, they bred a unique yellow form called Mandela's Gold. The ones they have planted at the garden are sort of a pale yellowish, almost like a pale banana, but the ones they have nowadays are full-on solid yellow, and are sold at Kirstenbosch and other botanical gardens as seeds in honor of Mandela's legacy. These are quite expensive, usually sending you back about 12 to 22 rand a seed, which is one to two dollars per seed, which you can then smoke treat and grow in your own garden. Smoke treating is used to germinate many feinbos plants, because wildfires are a critical part of feinbos ecology. This is another side lesson. About every 7 to 12 years, feinbos usually sets fire. Everything burns. The whole ecosystem starts again. But within weeks, after some rains, there's just an absolute carpet of greenery above the scorched earth. Because most feinbos flowers rely heavily on fires to really propagate themselves. So they've released a lot of seeds during their lifetime, but eventually the carpet gets so thickly covered in plants that new seeds cannot grow, even in the terribly poor soils you'd be shocked at how much can grow there. So then it's sort of like a clean slate, and the arms race begins, everything starts growing, and out it goes. There are some plants that are so dependent on it that they're actually going extinct now that wildfires are being controlled due to human habitation nearby. One species of sundew, the giant, the biggest sundew in the world, the king sundew, is it the king sundew? Drosorygia, which grows to be almost 50 centimeters tall, and is also one of the most prehistoric sundew species alive today, is really threatened because Restionaceae grasses are choking them out. Since they're growing so tall and so thick, the sundews are not getting access to sunlight anymore. That's another interesting tangent. But anyway, that is the end of Kirstenbosch. It was an incredibly long hike. We started at 8 o'clock in the morning when the gardens opened, and we got back to the gate at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. 10 hours and 22 kilometers of botanical and zoological awesomeness. And let me just say, there are very few views that can beat those going up, across, and down Table Mountain. You see all over the Cape Peninsula, all over the city, there's an ocean in the background. There are more mountains in the distance, carpeted in clouds, it is an absolutely phenomenal experience, and for those ever visiting Cape Town or South Africa, I heavily recommend Table Mountain. If you're fit, I very heavily advise trying to go up the hill. Pack, pack in some hiking boots, go up the gorge, go up the ravine, go up wherever you feel comfortable. And I trust you, or you can trust me rather, it will be an experience you will never forget. For those that are a bit tight on time, or have bad knees, or are simply not up for the challenge of climbing a whole mountain. The cable car is absolutely amazing. The view going up is awesome. The cable station is very pleasant. There are actual toilets there, and there are lots of routes leading away from there that are very accessible and allow you to see a lot of absolutely wonderful things. The reserve is very nicely mapped out, and I should really get paid for such an awesome promotion, just by the way. For those going through Kosenbosch, you have to pay an entry fee, but it's definitely worth hanging around there a bit as well going up the gorge, sniffing around and coming down. But anyway, I think that is enough ranting for one day. 
thank you so much for sticking around this long. As I said earlier, please check out the social media, the Instagram, the Patreon page if you'd like to support, and the WordPress website where I host my podcast. That is all from Hendre. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. See you next time. Scales, Tales, Plants and Trails, signing out.